747 Heavy Pain, start uh, runway 16 right, clear for takeoff. Hello and welcome to episode 201 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, joined from where? Great Falls State Park in outside of Portland, Oregon, excruciatingly close to Everett, Washington, but not not quite. But not quite. How dare they schedule such an auspicious occasion when you are inside of a waterfall? They really need to work around my flight plans a little better in the future, but we'll, we'll let it slide this time. And the next time Boeing retires another iconic aircraft, I expect a little more heads up. <laughs> or not retires, but finishes producing. It's, producing, I don't, yeah. I, I don't want to say retires. I will get yelled at a lot. Nope, nope. The aircraft itself will fly for decades to come. This particular delivery will likely be in service well into the 2050s at least. So I'm not worried on that front. But it is sad to see the last of them kind of leave the factory. As you can hear from Jason's background, he's inside of a waterfall in a state park in Oregon. I'm in the podcast studio place thingy. Your basement. My basement. And a bulk of today's episode is going to be a conversation that I'm having with John Ostrauer from The Air Current about Boeing finishing production of the 747, what comes next at Everett, and what comes next for Boeing. So we're going to talk a lot about that and then also look into the quick settlement of the dispute between Airbus and Qatar Airways. Seemingly coming out of nowhere. Yeah, we went from a Reuters article earlier in the week saying they were moving towards a settlement and said, okay, that's interesting, to all of a sudden, hey, we've settled our differences, we're withdrawing all of our lawsuits and countersuits, and we're reinstating our orders. But nobody is admitting fault. Never forget that part. As is the case for many things here, that's true. No one's admitting fault. But that will be the bulk of the show. We just wanted to check in with Jason, see how he's doing on his vacation. Jason, as is customary, who did you fly and how did it go? I flew Alaska Airlines, JFK, to Portland. And believe it or not, it was my very first time on a 737 MAX. Well done, sir. Did it feel 737-ish? I feel like I flew six hours across the continent on a 737. Well, points for consistency. Yeah, it was like every other 7.3 I've been on, except the engine is freakishly large and it is quieter. There is that. But tomorrow I'll be flying on an Alaska 7.3-800, I believe, and then an A321neo a few days after that. So I get to compare and contrast all of their newest, latest, greatest, and not so newest, latest, and greatest, or the aircraft (laughs) that is the newest, latest, greatest that they're getting rid of by the end of the year. So it's an interesting trip. It'll be a fun mix. Yeah. Well, we're going to let Jason get back to his vacation, get back to the waterfall, and we will be back next week with a regular show not coming to you from a state park, at least as far as the plan is now. We can't guarantee that. Yeah, this waterfall is pretty impressive. You never know. When we come back after a quick break, it'll be a conversation with John Ostrow from the Air Current. So stay with us. We'll be right back. As promised, we are back this week with John Ostrauer, Editor-in-Chief of The Air Current, a must-read aviation industry publication, if there ever was one. John, thank you so much, as always, for joining us. Always, always, always great to be with you. 
This is my favorite stop on the aviation podcasting circuit. Well, thank you, sir. It's been a quiet week, not much happening. That's why we figured we'd have you on. Not really much to talk about, just wanted to chat. Yeah, it's, it's a light week. It's a light week. Yeah, it's a light week. So what started out as kind of a singular week has morphed into a bit more. We've been really focused on the final delivery of the 747, the end of the production line, and we hadn't really discussed what was going to come next. And then Boeing announced this week that they were going to open up a fourth 737 MAX production line at Everett. So I wanted to just kind of tie everything together and kind of start with your thoughts on the close of the 747 program and seeing the final one go out the door. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It was was an emotional week. You know, it's like if ever there was an icon, I mean, look, 747 became synonymous with airplane. You know, would you fly in? Oh, I flew a 747. It's like, no, you didn't. You flew an A320. You know, it's like, oh, maybe it was 737. I don't know. But but like 747 is like the default airplane because it is so fantastically iconic. And we have spent the last several weeks collectively as an industry kind of paying tribute to its legacy. And it is extensive. And I think we could honestly spend an entire hour just talking about that, whether it be societal, commercial, top to bottom, diplomatic. I mean, but really, I mean, from this particular milestone this week, we just take this week in isolation. The end of the 747 leaves a sizable hole, literally two full bays worth of open space within the Boeing factory in Everett. And so on Monday, Monday morning, there was caught an announcement is a little squishy because it was more of a memo that found its way to those of us in the aerospace journalism world announcing that Boeing would put a 737 MAX line in Everett. It's not taking the same spot as occupied by the 47, but it will be over on the east side of the factory, which is the largest building by volume in the world still, and occupy a spot that was actually being used for modifying 787s and reworking them and getting them back in flying shape. And then those airplanes will get moved over to the 747 line, but this new line in Everett effectively answers the biggest question going into this whole two days of events at Boeing around the last delivery, which is what happens to Everett. And so, yes, we are going to get a 737 MAX line in Everett, which is about roughly 45, 50 minutes drive from Renton, where they do today the entire final assembly operation for the 737. So, this will be the first time that Everett has hosted a single aisle airplane for production. And it's also the first time since the 272nd 737, that 737s will be built anywhere but Renton. Actually, fun aviation trivia. The first 271 were built at Boeing Field, which is closer to downtown Seattle. So it opens up an entirely new set of of questions, but really exciting developments for, number one, the workforce. It's very significant for those in Everett who were wondering what comes next. What are they going to work on? Well, it's going to be 737s in Everett. And so it allows Boeing to take this massive factory and start putting it to use building single aisle airplanes as 777X is delayed, as 787 goes to Charleston, as 747 goes away, really does begin to answer some of those questions. So Boeing in the in the late 60s is designing the 747. Joe Sutter's put design to paper, his team's working on it, and they say, well, we don't really have a place to build it. So they go up to Everett and they build this ginormous building, like you mentioned, the, the largest building by volume. And so for the next 50 years, they build 
some of the largest aircraft in the world. And then we've kind of watched over the past few years, Boeing kind of slowly draw down. And I know that was a big question as they moved 787 production to South Carolina in, in totality, what was going to happen to that space. And so you mentioned the rework, and I think we should unpack that a little bit, kind of the quality issues that Boeing's been addressing with a number of the 787s that were built over the past few years. So that work was being done in basically in the existing 787 line that they initially stood up to build the aircraft? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So when production formally ended in spring of 2021, and everything from a new build perspective moved to South Carolina, they had this massive assembly bay, which is about one and a half times the size of one of the lines in Renton. And naturally, without going on too much of a tangent, it's actually even bigger because uh, Boeing does two side-by-side lines under one roof. It's an enormous, enormous building, enormous amount of space that's that's available here. And so what they did after things went to Charleston, they had dozens and dozens of 787s that they needed to be working on. And so they set up a more static sort of mod operation under that same roof while airplanes were going to be newly built in, in South Carolina and, and Boeing's only, it's still about one per month there on getting 87 production back going. So they're going to move the 787 rework over to where the 747 production line was. And then that 787 line will become the max line. Exactly. So the rate at the moment, is it still in the 30s? It is. Per yeah, month for yeah. the, the 737 max? So 737 max is at 31 and a half ish airplanes <laughs> per month. Not in, in a half ish. 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 Yeah, exactly. Building half an airplane is, you know, sometimes it's a good thing, sometimes it's not. There you go. But yeah, 31 and a half. But what's really interesting is that they've been struggling at 31 and a half. They haven't been able to get enough engines. There's been issues with suppliers. And so it's been kind of a halting path to go on. They actually really wanted to be at 38, 42, about a year ago. And so the supply chain has just not allowed them to do that along with this kind of whipsaw of pandemic employment within the supply chain and with its own, its own factories where you go up up really quick and then you swing down and you swing back up again as you know demand for aircraft returns. And so the lack of stability in the, in the aerospace supply chain is really, really tenuous at the moment. And you know, one person put it to me this way, effectively that Boeing had been looking at higher rates underneath the same roof and Renton and to, to really kind of push maybe past 63 per month, effectively 21 per month on each of the three lines that they have there. But in doing so, the supply chain just needs to be running like clockwork. And it's not. It's not only not running like clockwork, it is all kinds of messed up that where they're, where you've got you know, additional buffer you need to put in the line for fixing work, for modifying things and accounting for the discrepancies and whether it's late parts or whatever, or, or lack of engines or, you know, whatever it is. And so in a lot of respects, the, while the fourth line is absolutely great news for the workforce and in Everett, as they sort of look at the sunset and delays of various programs, it is ultimately a recognition of how fragile, how screwed up the supply chain is right now to have to effectively create an entirely new assembly line outside of your home base to account for a lot of the buffer that's required in the system to fix what's going on elsewhere. So then the fourth line isn't we're going to automatically start building more aircraft or building aircraft faster. It's basically saying 
we can't build aircraft as quickly as we want to at our existing factory. So we're just going to build more aircraft by building aircraft slowly. Am I getting this right? Effectively, yeah. And I think it'll start that way. I mean, they they so Boeing has been above 52 airplanes per month before. And they actually, that was in 2018. Summer of 2018, they were actually on their way to 57. And the whole thing was shaken at that point. Like just like, you know, it's about to come apart. I mean, they they couldn't get engines fast enough. There were fuselage availability issues. There were parts, you know, you'd you'd go over to Renton and you'd just see airplanes that are, you know, with sections covered up in plastic wrap and, you know, storage tape while waiting for final parts. And so what Boeing did then, they pulled back to said, okay, now we're going to hold it 52 and just leave it at there. We're not going to go to 57. Well, what happened was first the MAX was grounded and Boeing actually kept building through that first big chunk of the grounding. So that was March of 2019 and they actually pulled the rate back to 42 per month and none of them were delivering. So they actually built a huge inventory of hundreds and hundreds of airplanes that are still many huge chunk of those airplanes still need to go out the door even today. But then the pandemic hits and it just like demand goes away. While the line effectively is stopped because, you know, they got to a point during the grounding where they're like, okay, we need to just not be building more airplanes here. It's just building too much inventory. And so now Boeing is on its way back up as, I mean, Airbus went from 60 to 40 on the single aisle side, A through 20s during the pandemic. And then Boeing went from 42 to zero. And so going from zero, effectively standing still back to a level that they want to be at, which is between 50 and 60 by mid-decade, 25, 26, is really a huge challenge because of the muscle memory that's required to run at that tempo. I mean, the Renton factory was a a phenomenally well-oiled machine. Even as it struggled at at 52, it was still running at an unbelievable tempo. And historically, it's been on that evolutionary path toward higher rate under the same roof. I mean, this is a building that as Boeing sort of consolidated operations there in the early 2000s after the Nisqually earthquake, they actually went up significantly in rate. Went from, I think, 21 per month all the way to 42 per month and beyond all underneath the same roof. And that's an amazing thing to do when you think about the capabilities of a factory. So now here we are we, you know, having trouble getting past 31 and a half because of the supply chain, because of their own operations, because of just getting the workforce where it needs to be. So it's a really, it's an interesting challenge. One of the things to, to point out is that Airbus is having a similar challenge, not the same challenge, but a similar challenge getting to these higher rates. And a huge part of this is like, you know, Boeing and Airbus will say, well, we're not chasing market share. Well, okay, that's all well and good for a PR line, but it's not necessarily clear from their actions that <laughs> that's an accurate statement, you know, because you've got going to 50 airplanes per month at Boeing and 75 per month, 2025, 2026 at Airbus. And so Boeing is trying to keep pace. Airbus is trying to push because they've got demand and Boeing has demand too. But certainly there's a market share dynamic that's persisting here. And to me, at some point, these accelerating rates of production for single aisle aircraft it seems to kind of fly in the face of we're working really hard to move beyond this aircraft. Do you know what I'm saying? Like where you've got Airbus and Boeing saying we're going to increase rates. We're going to, you know, Boeing's going to build 40, 50, 60, 70 per month. Airbus is saying we're going to do 75 and we could go higher depending 
But then they're also both saying, well, we're going to move beyond these types of aircraft and we're, we need to see what's next. Boeing, but we really you know, like the cash they're bringing in right now. Well, right, <laughs> exactly. But at some point, I mean, you get to the point where you're talking about mid-decade is, is those rates are going to be so high. At some point, you're going to hit a wall of some kind that says, well, we need to start building fewer of these aircraft because yeah. we have to start building the next thing. You know, If Airbus wants to build a hydrogen aircraft, if Boeing wants to build something. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But it seems to me that there's kind of incongruity between raising these rates as fast as possible and perhaps a bit more fast than is practicable and what comes next for all the talk about what comes next. Yeah. You know, it's funny, Courtney and I have this debate back and forth and you know, there was a huge glut of, of wide body aircraft in the market going into the pandemic. And there are a lot of reasons for that. There was the massive A330 increase in production in the face of 787 delays. There was the massive increase in 777 production in the face of 787 delays back in the early 2010s. And then you had the 787 come online and then it was a sprint to 900 deliveries over the following you know, way less than a decade since it entered service. And so there was just a, a tremendous, tremendous number of wide-body aircraft that came into the market. And frankly, when the pandemic hit, even the day before COVID arrived, there were way too many airplanes and everyone knew there was too many airplanes. The debate that Courtney and I have is that he doesn't think that there's a risk of oversupplying on single-aisle airplanes. I look at kind of the rates, even with you know a current scarcity of airplanes because of underproduction because of the max grounding, because of COVID, because of all of that and, and holding off the production plans, I think this industry will still find a way to stumble into an oversupply. It's just it, <laughs> one way or another, they get to that point and what forces them to pull back. And what forced them to pull back was actually really interesting in 2019 was the max grounding. And the max grounding forced Boeing to just stop delivering airplanes. So, there was a kind of an artificial scarcity that was created and largely was the entire industrial ecosystem's way of taking a breather where you didn't run into an oversupply situation at a time when there already were too many wide bodies in the mix. So let's talk now about the future. We've talked a lot about what Airbus is planning with their small electric aircraft with their larger hydrogen powered aircraft and moving towards that kind of 2035, 2045. But we hadn't really talked about what Boeing was doing other than, you know, we think SAF is a good way to go and we're kind of waiting to see, you know, what happens. But in the past couple of weeks, we've seen a real inkling of where Boeing's headed with the award from NASA on the trust-based wing concept. And it's a simple concept, at least as far as the renderings are concerned, but it seems to offer a pretty big improvement in fuel burn. So I was hoping we could kind of unpack where this came from and what Boeing's involvement is. Yeah. So a couple weeks ago, NASA announced that it was going to be awarding a $425 million contract to Boeing to build the sustainable flight demonstrator. And that $425 million comes with a $725 million, at least $725 million contribution from industry to fund this development. And notably, $425 million is over seven years. So you need congressional expenditure and approval of the NASA operating plan by each session of Congress every time. 
So it's not without its hurdles. But what did Boeing win? Boeing won the ability to design a demonstrator aircraft taking an MD-90 that used to fly at Delta and slicing and dicing, actually slicing and dicing two or three of them to create an aircraft that has a really very slender, very thin wing above the fuselage, but supported by two trusses. So think Cessna 172 style that are aerodynamically shaped to allow for high-speed flight, which is very hard with these really long, slender wings, but also the trusses themselves generate lift. And as you can imagine, the design is called the transonic high-speed truss-braced wing, the TTBW. And it's actually been something that Boeing has been working on for really since the late 2000s. It's like 2007, 2008, 2009. And it's something that they've always sort of quietly fixated on and researched as a probable next major leap in step change in fuel efficiency for a single aisle airplane. Well, why does this work? Well, so we've already seen a trend among wide body airplanes, think 777X and its folding wingtips, to have a longer, thinner wingspan. But the problem is they're all, the span could go on forever and that would be the most efficient design, but it's going to stop somewhere. <laughs> but eventually, you have to park an airplane at the gate, and you want to use the same 777-sized gates as before, so they fold the wing. Well, a folding wing is also part of this truss brace design, but it takes this idea of growing span, which ultimately reduces induced drag, which is the drag that comes along with producing lift, and effectively puts a wide-body wingspan in a single-aisle package. So we're going to see these really like long, slender, thin, almost glider-like wings on this demonstrator. And Boeing thinks that this can, on its own, just aerodynamically, can reduce fuel consumption by about 9 or 10%. Okay, so well, that's not – you said, well, 9 or 10%, that's not that much. Well, when you pair it with a new systems architecture, possible hybrid electrification of propulsion, new engine designs, you're actually looking at a step change of potentially 30% fuel efficiency improvement over today's 737 MAX and A320. And that is enormous. That is essential for the sustainability of the industry in terms of burning less of whatever you put in the tank, whether it's traditional jet A or, or sustainable aviation fuels. And ultimately, will allow the industry to justify its own existence. So that's why there's so much of a focus here. We could get into an entirely different economic debate about the idea of induced demand, which is to say, well, okay, well, if, if you can fly 30% more fuel efficient, wouldn't you just fly 30% more negating the benefit? Well, you know what? That It's the Prius effect, which is, oh, it's so much more fuel efficient, but we're going to sell a ton of them. So whatever savings in fuel efficiency in aggregate actually gets eliminated. Again, that's an important part of this, but it's not necessarily the key part of the discussion now, but it's a worthy one as far as industry growth. And I'm rambling, so I'm, I'm going to throw it back to you. <laughs> so my thinking here, yeah, you were talking about induced demand, but you're also talking about an aircraft that, you know, nine or 10% off the top isn't bad at all. And that's all well and good. But where does this take Boeing from we're going to design a concept or two, really? I guess, you know, one concept, do some proving of it, and then design a second, slightly larger version. And then how does that square with what Calhoun said 
last year, where until we can prove that we can take you know enough percentage points off the fuel burn to start working on a new aircraft. I mean, is this along the same lines? Could this become Boeing's next aircraft or is this a separate, we are also going to build this? There's a growing school of thought within Boeing itself that this is going to be the pathfinder for what comes next. Does the transonic truss brace wing become the configuration? That's still up for debate. But there are enormous implications for using this as a platform for figuring out how to do high-rate composite technology, for example, and other hybrid electrification of propulsion, new systems architecture designs, all of that, new aerodynamic technologies that will allow it to flow into maybe a more traditional form factor, but one that does offer a genuine step change in efficiency. Last November, Boeing said, well, okay, you know, look, there's not going to be a new airplane from us this decade. It's just not happening. We're taking it off the table. And look, that was a gut punch for a lot of for a lot of folks. Because it was like, okay, well, now what? This was, and I think I actually even said when we, we talked about this uh, the last time I, I was on yeah. with you guys, right? That, yeah. that the SFD was going to be the thing that was the thing to watch, the sustainable flight demonstrator and that mm-hmm. award. And here it is, right? When you outline a series of strategic goals to foster single-aisle aircraft production, the future of single-aisle aircraft production and and technology in the US, there's only one person who can win the contract. (laughs) And so Boeing had the trust-based aircraft ready for this discussion, and they had already bought the airplanes and all that. So, But it was already progressing that direction. They were effectively a shoe-in for this. But within that, it gives Boeing the opportunity to, I think, from a both a strategic and a messaging perspective, I think those go, go hand in hand here, to say, we are pushing the boundary here. And there is also a very much a school of thought within Boeing that all the things that Airbus is doing are mostly for show. Yes, flying the rise is usually important to validate the engine, but hanging it under the wing of a 380 doesn't get you any aerodynamic benefit necessarily. And this is all the shade you'd expect to be thrown by folks at Boeing and Airbus. But I don't want to also understate how important the demonstrator is for Boeing. The last time Boeing did a commercial demonstrator was 1954. That was the 367-80 that became the KC-135 and the 707. So having this in their their arsenal for these, you know, testing these new technologies that are going to be pathfinding to, you know, 2035, Boeing and Airbus right now are in the homework years for what these airplanes are going to be. It might be a really boring decade as far as product development that we can fly on. But from a product research side and technology research side, the next 10 years are going to decide whether or not the aerospace industry will be around, yes, around in 2050, 60, and 70 when we see the long-term consequences of how we adapt to climate change. That's one of the things that I've been thinking about lately is, did we get this too wrong too late? I feel like there was a a point in time a few years ago when all of this would have been good to get started. And I know that the commercial aircraft industry operates at what could charitably be described as a glacial pace. Charitably. On a good day, it's, it's glacial. Yeah. But I feel like everything's picking up steam much more quickly than you would expect if there wasn't a realization that what you just said, the existence of the industry is being called into question. It absolutely is. And and, and we talk about the glacial pace. So the first 747 that that came off the the assembly line 
from I think launch to rollout was like 36 months or something like that. <laughs> the so it's what three years. The time from contract award to first flight of the sustainable flight demonstrator under this NASA contract is going to be five years, <laughs> not certified. So just to give you a sense of how the pace of things slowing down. That's a fantastic kind of side by side for to illustrate. Yeah, but yes, it is existential. And look, I, I think the societal appetite, the visibility. I mean, look, aviation is only two and a half, three and a half percent of global CO two emissions. And so, but they are disproportionately visible. And I think it it is also one of those things where it's an, also an industry that has continually and unceasingly sought to reduce its fuel burn, with the notable exception of the <laughs> probably the late 1980s when the price of oil collapsed. And they were like, oh, we're good. We don't need to do unducted fans and, and all that stuff. And they kind of kept going on their merry, merry way. And oil has been cheap and it's the incentive is always there, but it, it's waned over time. But now we're looking at an environment where the necessity is essential. I think one of the things that I'm still trying to wrap my head around is after watching the lessons of the 787 and the tremendous cost that Boeing bore to bring that much new technology to bear in the wide body sector and how Airbus brings their airplanes to, to the fore, watching how their Boeing and Airbus's respective strategies unfold in this new environment is going to be, I think, phenomenally, phenomenally important because is there still a way to deliver new technology, a new form factor, a, a, a genuine 30% step change in, in, in efficiency and how we do this without making the cost of delivering that step change completely prohibitive either for airlines or for aircraft manufacturers? So, that is going to be the the biggest challenge over over the next decade. And I think the strategies that Boeing and Airbus use to get there are going to be the things that are going to be most exciting to watch because that is going to be the path toward achieving that industry viability long-term. One of the things that I've been thinking about as well is, is there, do we need a return to kind of retail marketing from aircraft manufacturers? Because, I mean, you think back to the the 50s and early 60s, there were commercials saying aircraft do this, they can fly you places and they won't crash into the ground. Please do fly on our aircraft. So, I mean, is there room for a return to retail marketing where aircraft manufacturers are saying, look, this is what we're doing. We're trying to solve this problem as best we can. Here's how we're doing it. Airbus has done a little of that. Boeing, not really, but Boeing kind of had a real mastery of that marketing material back in the late 50s and early 60s. So, I mean, would that help at all? You don't have to go back that far to find Boeing's mastery of that. I mean, one of the absolutely skillful things Boeing did was between 2003 and 2008, nine was they actually marketed the 787 and its various attributes directly to passengers. Which in turn, you know, you know, theoretically, incentivized airlines to be like, "Well, I, my passengers want that. I, let's let's do that. Let's buy that airplane." You know, whether it was the bigger windows, the humidity, all of the, all these passenger pleasing features. But if you look at the way that they were focusing, they weren't focusing on the airlines; they were focusing on the passengers themselves. And Boeing did a great job of that. Really, just skillful. And I think that that it's faded back a little bit as the environmental component has has played out here. 
I think what we're going to see going forward is certainly Airbus is geared in their entire communication strategy around sustainability. And Boeing is moving in that direction. But yes, I think I think the fundamentally Boeing and Airbus are B to B customers. They sell to other businesses. They don't sell directly to consumers. And I think we were already seeing airlines being able to sort of compete on sustainability, whether it's legitimate or not. Certainly they're trying to outdo each other around around who can deliver a more sustainable product. You know, look, it's whether it's using you know, getting rid of plastics on board and, and and all these little these little things that that can can really add up, but fundamentally don't change the fact that you're still carrying around tens of thousands of pounds of, of jet fuel that you need to get from point A to point B. That remains the same. I guess the question is, what is the consumer behavior going to be? And I would also posit on top of that, the consumer behavior is not going to be uniform based on geography. Like just being in Europe recently, they're just so acutely aware of carbon, carbon emissions, carbon footprint, especially when it comes to flying, that I suspect we'll probably see it far more over there than in the US. I mean, the US is sort of like, yeah, people are aware of it, but it doesn't seem like anyone is, certainly the huge bounce back in air travel certainly indicates that people are not changing their behavior with that in mind. Yeah. I think the fact that the geographic proximity to other forms of transportation, especially in Europe, is a much bigger piece of the puzzle than it is here in the US. I mean, the, the ability to travel almost as far as you want to go without having to get on a plane is certainly a lot more helpful there. And would I mind having those options and not having to get on a plane? I would not mind at all. So I, I think that it's all part of a much larger conversation. But I think we are reaching the point where everyone's kind of on board now with, we have to figure out what comes next. And we have to do it faster than we thought, but also not necessarily as fast as as we probably should have. Yeah. And a lot of the message, as one person put it to me, so well, you need to keep buying our current generation airplanes so you can so we can get to the next generation. And it's like, okay, you know, the argument goes that, you know, you you're not gonna have the money or the resource the resources, whether they're financial or industrial or intellectual, to do these big projects if you starve aviation today. And that seems to be their, you know, again, fly now and, you know, we can get, we can bridge to that point. That it's a very controversial argument, by the way. It's not, it's not necessarily a slam dunk, but it is the argument that they're making because- That's, that's the one they're going with. That's the one they're absolutely going with. Fair enough. Before I let you go, I want to talk about something that happened today before we recorded, which is highly unusual. So first of all, thank you to Boeing for delivering the aircraft and having the 747 final departure before we recorded this week's podcast. I appreciate that. Thank you, Boeing. Thank you, Atlas. But this news, we're switching topics completely and going over to Europe and Qatar. Airbus and Qatar have patched up their long-running and extremely acrimonious dispute about the A350 paint chipping and foil damage, Qatar having grounded you know, dozens of Airbus A350s, Airbus saying, we're not sure why you grounded them. It's just a painting issue. And back and forth and back and forth. And as late as last week, they were back in court arguing for motions for discovery and turning over documents. And then 
today all is forgiven and Qatar has brought their existing order book back in and said, yeah, we still want those planes. Dogs and cats living together. <laughs> mass hysteria. <laughs> the goddamn right? stuff. You know, this has been a long saga to end up back right at the beginning. I mean, we it's yes, it gets resolved. It was a each side got to make their case to their own customers, to to lawyers, to judges, and it's there's a settlement, and they're going to fix the airplanes, and and they're going to get them back in operation, and you know everyone's going to move on their merry way, and time and money heals all wounds, and I think that's right. <laughs> exactly. But is is there any material resolution to so what's going on with the paint? Is that cool? And the answer I think the Airbus has is always going to end is yeah, it's fine, and. Qatar seemingly has accepted that answer and whatever settlement is in the mix to help them accept that answer is upon us. So yeah, it was such it's just such a kind of a bizarre end to as you mentioned, get back to where we were. But we don't even get back to where we were because Qatar lost three years on getting the planes it says it so desperately wants. Exactly. And then said it didn't want. And then went out and bought 50 MAX 10s. And so what happens to the MAX 10 order? I mean, in, in my mind, they keep at least some of them. I mean, they've got 25 firm, 25 options. Do the MAX 10s, I mean, assuming the MAX 10 gets certified anytime soon, do they take those ahead of the the A321 Neos that they were supposed to begin taking delivery of last month, but now won't be until 2026. Yeah, it's getting out of line is costly. Well, I think what we're going to see to some extent is Qatar is probably going to take some Max 8s, airplanes that may have already been been built. There was actually a, a Max 8 that was floating around Boeing Field with a Qatar rudder painted on it. Which would have certainly given a, a a fair signal that something was coming down the line from that front. I don't know if they're going to take the Max Tens. Certainly, I think the need is capacity, right? You know, either that airplane is delayed until probably won't see that in service until at least twenty twenty four, which is what United, the launch customer, shared with with me recently. And yeah, I mean, if you need airplanes quickly, this might be the the best way to do it. Especially if you're getting three twenty one Neos. Look, there are plenty of airlines that do a combination of three twenty one Neo, three twenty Neo, and Max Eight. You know, Korean did that. There were a few others. So they they do have tend to pair nicely with for certainly larger operations. But yeah, right. I mean, I mean that was a Airbus closed the door on them. They said, no, you're not taking out getting these airplanes as long as you're suing us. And in turn, Qatar went across the street and said, hey, okay, hey, Air Boeing, what can you do for me? And then you know, ten minutes later, <laughs> you've got a Max Ten deal. You know, it's it. So yeah, I I think that it's a it's about. Capacity. I think it's about leverage. I think it's about all these different things. But I think that they're going to find a way to get those airplanes in one way or another. I suspect, I may be wrong, it's entirely possible that they are going to do A321 Neos and Max 8s as a combination of airplanes over time. But I think I'd be surprised if they, if they operate both. That's just my sort of head scratcher, armchair. You mean both the Max 8 and Max 10? I'd be surprised if they operate the Max 10 and the A321 Neo. At the same time. Oh, okay. I see yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Well, we shall see. We shall indeed. John Ostrauer is the editor-in-chief of The Air Current, a industry publication that you should all be reading if you're not already, though I suspect many of you are, and thank you for that. John, always good to talk with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show this week. My pleasure. That is our show for the week. Thank you so very much for listening. 
This has been episode 201 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, joined underneath a waterfall by Jason Rabinowitz, and we will talk to you all next week with a fresh episode and very likely no waterfalls whatsoever. Thanks for listening. (music) 